0: Hello everyone and welcome to Layman's Law. I'm Yvie. And I'm Fenu. And we're so excited to bring you our very first episode. So, the law belongs to everyone, or at least it's supposed to. But what's crazy is that, before Fenu and I started our postgrad study, we probably couldn't tell you the difference between common law and statute. And this is coming from two women who were lucky enough to be well-educated in other disciplines at one of the top universities in Australia.
1: Exactly right, Amy. We realized that what we know about the law and how it operates in our everyday lives before we embarked on a more formalized study was literally just coming out of binge watching How to Get Away with Murder or all nine seasons of Suits or Legally Blonde. Guilty. (laughs) The more we learned about how the law actually operates in Australia, we realized how harmful it was really to keep this knowledge in so-called ivory towers As Imi said, the law does belong to everyone. It is the framework on which our very societies operate and it is so prevalent in our everyday lives. Every time you drive past a speed camera, the law affects you. Every time you get bulk billed at the doctor, the law affects you. And every time you click accept to the terms and conditions whilst online shopping without actually reading the terms and conditions, the law affects you. And, Amy, that last one is definitely me throughout this lockdown. Athena, At you've got me right there. I have never once read the Iconics
0: Terms and Conditions yet. I blindly accept them every time I buy from there. And that's exactly why this podcast is here. The aim of this season is to look over an area of law that affects everyone, everywhere. Human rights. Essentially, we want to contextualize and break down the laws that impact all of us. The utter madness of this pandemic illuminated how we all have such different understandings and conceptualization of what actually constitutes human rights. I mean, you
1: only have to look at the anti lockdown protests to see the issue in action. And it's not just your anti-lockdown protesters or, you know, bunning Karens evoking human rights suddenly. We've seen over the last couple of years a real shift in how societies are dealing with this issue. You don't need to look any further than things like the Black Lives Matter movement to see that human rights, despite there being a pandemic, is still such a live issue. So I'm really interested, me before we dive into the theoretical details of all of this, why are you interested in human rights? What is it That brings you to this area of the
0: law. Then what you've asked is a really good question and one I've been trying to get my head around for the past couple of weeks. I've always been interested in human rights, but I've never been able to attribute the source of that interest to exactly one spot. And it wasn't until I read a quote from Angelina Jolie from the 2013 Governor's Awards that I think I understood my position a little bit better. So Angelina said the following. She said, I've never understood why some people are lucky enough to be born with the chance that I had, with this path in life, and why across the world there's a woman just like me with the same abilities and the same desires, the same work ethic and love for her family, who would most likely make better films and better speeches. Only she sits in a refugee camp and she has no voice. She worries about what her children will eat, how to keep them safe, and if they'll ever return home. I don't know why this is my life and that's hers. I think the why that quote really resonated with me is because I've been very fortunate to have travelled overseas uh, and been to some really great places, but to have unfortunately seen some really abject and awful poverty. And um, whenever I've come home, I've returned up with nearly a sense of privilege guilt, and I've never quite been able to grapple with why I was fortunate enough to be born in a safe environment to have had a great upbringing and why someone else didn't have the same opportunity and why their life was completely different to mine. So I think human rights for me speak as as a way or a method that we can connect with people. I know this sounds like the eternal optimist is shining out of me, Mm -hmm. but I think it is an opportunity to redress injustice globally. And for me, I've only become more passionate about this over the past few years as we've seen particularly arise in the need to talk more about women's rights in particular, even with what we've seen happening in Texas, freedom of speech is becoming more prevalent. So I think it's an ever growing area that we need to keep talking about and I think there's just, there's always something to talk about with human rights. There's always a place to take it. So that's what's brought me here. How about you, Thenu? How'd you get into this area?
1: I don't think I can explain why I'm so passionate about human rights without first telling our audience about my own family story. So my mum and dad came down to Australia during the Sri Lankan Civil War. For those of you who don't know, what the Sri Lankan Civil War was. It was pretty much a conflict between the two main ethnic groups in Sri Lanka, and it was caused by classic divide and conquer tactics from the British colonisers. During this time, it was really difficult to find a safe space to study. Um, My mum would tell me stories of, you know, burning buildings and people rioting in the streets and even this one time where like my family who were Sinhalese so the major ethnic group having to harbor our friends who were Tamil um, so the other ethnic group in our living rooms while people were trying to burn down their house just because of their ethnicity. I grew up in the really safe suburbs of Adelaide. Um, I went to a really good school, through a scholarship and had a really great chance to reach my potential. But I remember this really specific moment when I went and visited Sri Lanka. I would have been about six or seven years old. And I remember going to visit some of my family members in rural Sri Lanka and we actually got an army escort because it was still really unsafe because the war was ongoing and I was sitting in this army van with escorts there and I saw this other child on the streets sitting next to their mother they probably were the same age as I was here I was in my little safe bubble in the army van And another kid who looks like me probably spoke the same language as me, but just because of where I was born, like you said, Imi, I was living such a different life. So this idea of human rights was really important to me because I do think that everyone deserves a chance to reach their potential wherever they are and wherever they are born.
0: And Athenu, I think that your experiences speak really well to where you've ended up now in your life. Could you tell the audience a little bit about where you're currently working and what your work involves in the day-to-day?
1: Yeah, sure. So currently I'm the CEO of Oak Tree, which is Australia's largest youth-run international development agency. It's really interesting, Imi, that you quoted Angelina Jolie saying that, you know, there's someone sitting in a refugee camp somewhere saying that they have no voice. Totally understand what Angelina is trying to say there but what we do at Oak Tree is say actually that person does have a voice all the young people that we're advocating for across the Asia-Pacific do have a voice and have really great things to contribute to their community the systems and structures around them just don't allow that voice to come out so what we're doing at Oak Tree is trying to change the systems so that young people are empowered to create the changes they want to see in their communities.
0: I think that's a really really great goal to have and it's so awesome we've got organizations like Oaktree working towards this, but it does lend itself really well to the conversation then about what actually does constitute human rights.
1: It's a really great question, Imi, and definitely where we should start this podcast Human rights is actually a fairly new concept, which surprised me when I first started studying this subject in detail. While its roots do lie in many different cultures, like throughout the last few millennia, it was really World War II that created the human rights project as we know it today. The idea of human rights emerged strongly after World War II. The murders of over 6 million Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and people with disabilities by Nazi Germany horrified the world. The trials were held in Nuremberg and Tokyo after the war, and officials from the defeated countries were punished for committing those war crimes. And Now, after these trials, governments across the world committed themselves to establishing what we now know as the UN, the United Nations. And the primary goal of this organisation was to ensure international peace and prevent conflict. People wanted to ensure that never again would anyone be unjustly denied life, freedom, food, shelter, and nationality like we had seen in World War II. The calls came from across the globe for human rights standards to protect citizens from abuses by their governments, standards against which nations could be held accountable for the treatment of those living within their borders. So in essence, Imi, human rights are moral principles for certain standards of human behaviour. They're basic rights and freedoms that belong to every person in the world from birth, until death. There is, though, Thenu
0: uh, one problem that a lot of people do have with human rights, and that's where do these rights come from? Who's granting us these rights? And what are the purpose of these rights? So, Thenu uh, Professor Mary Denver tried to answer this question by doing a close reading of academic literature on this topic. In her paper, What are Human Rights? Four Schools of Thoughts, she reveals that we do not all conceive of human rights in the same way. She separates human rights literature into four different camps. We've got the natural scholars who conceive of human rights as a given. Then we've got the deliberative scholars who think human rights are agreed upon. Then we've got protest scholars who view these rights as continuously fought for. And then the discourse scholars who think human rights exist just because they're talked about. These ideas can be pretty challenging to wrap your head around. So, Thanou, can you get us started and tell us a bit about who these
1: schools of thought are on the playground? Who are these schools on the playground? That's a great way to frame it in me because I think a lot of academic literature can sound really complex when you read it but ultimately like we're about to say they can be distilled down to really simple concepts so if I were to start with the natural school of thought what first came to my mind when I read about this school was that They are a classic Hufflepuff for anyone who has read or seen the Harry Potter movies. You know, this school of thought is a real classic introduction to what human rights are. It's what human rights were first built of. And it's perhaps what most people think about when they think of human rights to begin with. So this natural school of thought adopts the belief that everyone, by virtue of their humanity, is entitled to certain human rights. They think that it is the law of nature that all humans are born with rights, such as the right to life, health, freedoms, and speech. So we meet, they absolutely love human rights. They don't need a specific, you know, rational reason for human rights to exist. In fact, they take quite what I would say a spiritual approach to some extent. They think that there is an overarching transcendent source of human rights, whether that's a God, nature, the universe, whatever you want to call it. So human rights are things that every human is born with. People in this school tend to think that you do not necessarily need social recognition or laws for human rights to exist. But there are a lot of calls within this school of thought for human rights to be enshrined in what we call positive law. So the law that exists within our world currently. And this is because scholars admit that not everyone will just believe in a transcendent, ooh, <laughs> I can't say that word, You're good. You believe in a transcendent nature of human rights. So they do call for it to be embedded in law. And now traditionally, when human rights were first established after World War II, this is the idea that was latched onto. It was the most popular conception of human rights. But Imi, we are starting to see a shift to what we're calling the deliberative school of thought. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that one?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Next up is the deliberative school. So they've definitely got the optimism that the natural school holds on to. However, they do bring some perhaps some cynicism or at least a sense of realism into this perception of human rights. So in a way, they're best conceptualized as kind of the raven claw of the four on the playground. I love that we're sticking to this analogy. It's great. <laughs> it's working so good. So whilst like a natural school, it does aspire for universal human rights, it's acutely aware of the limits that halt the growth and progression of human rights and doesn't seek to extrapolate human rights as one perfect uniform standard across all society. It does, though, revere constitutional law as a strong statement of rights.
1: And then then we've got the protest school. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, the protest school is your classic, you know, social justice warrior on the playground, and I say that in the most endearing terms as a social justice warrior. Um, And I would say, if we're sticking to the Harry Potter theme, this would be a Gryffindor. Like, this is someone who is very attuned to what is wrong with the world, and perhaps to their detriment as well. So, the people in the protest school express rightful claims on behalf of the poor, the underprivileged, and the oppressed. So they think that these claims and aspirations allow the status quo to be contested in favor of these people that we've just talked about. But the thing is, for them, there is always further injustice in need of redress. I want to read out a quote from Dembo from her article, which I think really highlights what the school is about. These people tend to distrust human rights law. They fear that it may be hijacked by the elite and are wary of bureaucratization. They generally do not believe that institutions, including so-called human rights institutions, can be trusted to realize the human rights ideal. For them, human rights law is unlikely to be true to the human rights ideal. They regard human rights law as a mitigated process at best and a sham at worst. Absolutely brutal, in my opinion, Imi. That's pretty damning. <laughs> it is, but I think it speaks to a real truth that there are a lot of scholars out there who think the Human Rights Project has been hijacked almost as a colonial endeavor. It was created by Western countries after the you know, the the win of World War II on the allies' side. And the conception that is created is often bureaucratized in a way that doesn't always favor the people it is aiming to protect. This might not be a super pragmatic approach, going back to my real life experiences at least. There is a reason why these human rights are bureaucratized. They need to be Socialized throughout our society um so I am naturally a little bit dubious about this school of thought because I think there is a real benefit of human rights regardless of the critics that we need to need to take into account what do you think of me
0: no I completely agree with you I definitely share some suspicion regarding this school however if I have to play devil's advocate here I do understand in some cultures they would perceive certain human rights as an imposition of values, which doesn't align with their culture. So I think that as much as human rights are a great aspiration to have, they do need to be culturally appropriate. So I can understand why we do need to reserve some cynicism for human rights when it comes to this area, which then actually leads us on very nicely to our last school of thought, Venu, which is the discourse school of thought. And it's essentially the Slytherin of our four. When we think about the discourse school, it's characterised by its irreverence towards human rights. It essentially believes they knew that human rights only exist because we talk about them and that the language we use to talk about human rights has really become a vehicle, if not a Trojan horse, to the share of certain political assertions. So you can kind of think of the discourse school as the one most likely to tell a four-year-old
1: that Santa isn't real. (laughs) They're really the anarchists in the playground, right? Oh, they absolutely are. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Imi, I know that Den Boer says that these four schools of thought aren't necessarily always mutually exclusive, but they do say that most academic literature can be separated into these four classes. So that begs the question, where do you think you fit?
0: That's a really good question, Benu. And I think before I read this paper, I would have said that I fell into the natural school of thought. But I think upon some reflection, I probably more closely align with the protest school. I'm not cynical enough to fall into the discourse school, but I do see the main point of human rights as being an attempt to overcome injustice and to rectify irregularities. Um, and disparity in society. So that's probably where I sit. But I think though, in some ways, human rights now conceptions of them can kind of depend on the time we're in. And I think that as mentioned before, the cynicism that a lot of us are experiencing right now would probably push a lot of us into more the discourse or protest school of thought, but perhaps in times when the world seems a little less turbulent, where we might be a little a little bit more likely to fall into the deliberative or the natural school of thought. What about you, Venu? Where do you sit, sit amongst all this?
1: Yeah, so Imi, I've been thinking about this a lot. I would say when I first read this article it was a natural school of thought that stood out to me. Um, I think it's now in hindsight because human rights has always been conceptualized I think in our collective consciousness as rights that are given to humans by virtue of being human but when I read that there were actually other schools of thought I think it was a deliberative school that really caught my attention. I am a big believer that Human rights don't necessarily need to be attributed to a source, like their pragmatic, what's the word, their pragmatic sort of um, end goal is enough for me to say that it is a useful tool. And I would say throughout my work, the idea that it is just embedded in law has really helped to override some of the cultural barriers that we've faced to, for example, youth empowerment. In my home country of Sri Lanka, um, young people are often said to sit back and listen to their elders, which is a huge important thing that I respect so much in our culture. But having human rights frameworks that say, you know, children do have a right to have a say really helps in ultimately reaching that end goal to build a better and more fair society for everyone. So that's why the deliberative school of thought sits well with me.
0: No, I completely agree with everything you've said, particularly about on the culturally adaptive point. I think that's one of the biggest benefits of the deliberative school of thought is that we can not is that not impose necessarily values upon cultures, but we can create a universal set of human rights that can be interpreted in ways that are culturally acceptable to different places. I think that's the most important point because where human rights often fall over is when we do encounter the criticisms of this is essentially one person or one culture's understanding of right and we're forcing it upon other people. So I love that from this school of thought, rights are malleable and we can use rights to progress but we can do it in a manner which is culturally adaptive and acceptable to people. Absolutely.
1: In saying that, though, I do really appreciate the protest school of thought. I think this is my inner Gryffindor, but I think there's always more that we need to achieve. And the Human Rights Project for sure does not cover everything right now. And there is real merit to to continuously looking at how we can improve that. And Amy, I think that's what we're going to talk about next time. Is that correct? Yes, it absolutely is. So
0: on our next episode, we're going to be talking about critiques of human rights. And I think I'm pulling forward to this episode mainly because one of the challenges that kept popping up for me when I was considering the content of this episode was looking at, well, we've all got different understandings of human rights. How can we actually improve human rights standards globally when we're still so unsure about what human rights even are or what they actually mean for everyone? So I'm really excited to jump into some critiques of human rights um, and go from there. What about you, though, Thanu? What challenges came up for you as you were getting ready for this episode?
1: Yeah, I think what really challenged me, first of all, if I were to sit to the protest school, is that, there weren't really any alternatives suggested. So especially the discourse and protest school, there is a lot of bagging on human rights, let's be honest. not yeah. actually suggesting a viable alternative. Um, and as like a very passionate pragmatist, I always want to see the solution when someone offers a critique. So that's why I'm really interested to go more into the critiques next week and hopefully solve some of those challenges that are buzzing away in my brain right now. Hey, one challenge solved, one podcast at a time. And on that note, if
0: you've liked our podcast, well, don't forget to leave us a review on the podcast app and you'll find us in all your favourite podcast places. And you can also find us on Instagram, Thanu, because we have a brand new Instagram page. If you look up Laban's Law Media to keep up with us and, of course, follow us for some fresh memes. Until next week, though, Thanu, an absolute pleasure chatting to you as always, and I can't wait to deep dive the critiques of human rights with you.
1: I cannot wait. I'll see you next week, Emmy. See you next week, Benny. Bye. Thanks for listening.